drinks finally hit her. She said, I'm no quitter, but I finally quit living on dreams. I'm hungry for laughter and here ever after. I'm after whatever the other life brings. In the mirror, I saw him and I closely watched him. I thought how he looked out of place. He came to the woman who sat there beside me. He had a strange Ghoulish tidings, my dear friends. Hoping everybody had a fantastic new year. It's 2023. Woohoo! I was in Chicago, still am actually, leaving in a couple days. Anyways, I got to spend time with my family, and to me that's always a phenomenal time. Those tunes you just heard are, of course, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey, and as always, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. And welcome to the very first episode of 2023. Joining me this brand spanking new year is my friend Gail. I had the pleasure of meeting this kind gal in Tombstone last October when my friend John and I were playing my Tombstone trivia game that I had made. And we were playing at the Undertaker's and she came and it attracted her and she sat and we played together and it was just so much fun. And she's actually the very first person to buy my game. So that's pretty awesome. Gail is the seventh generation Texan, born in San Antonio, Texas, love that area, and she was raised in small towns. She grew up believing in the paranormal due to experiences that her dear father and his family experienced all of his life. He had always shared those experiences with her as a child. Gail believes that her sweet father, who passed away when she was only the tender age of 14 years, stayed around for about three months to watch over her and her mother to make sure that wife and daughter were okay. She currently resides in Tombstone, Arizona, the town too tough to die, hello, my favorite place, which is a hotbed of paranormal activity, and she enjoys life there. She is also done 19th century living history for well over 30 years and had quite a few experiences, as well as experiences shared by friends. She recently had a firsthand interesting experience at the Cochise Hotel in Arizona, something that you're going to hear about later in the episode. History is not only Gail's passion, but has become quite a hobby for her as well. She has even professionally edited three professional history books. The most recent just recently came out, and she translated 19th century archaic Spanish documents for that book, which is about the 1835 Battle of Bexar for San Antonio. Now that's really impressive and quite the accomplishment. She is also an animal lover and is actively involved in two nationwide animal rights organizations, and she's a horse fanatic can't blame her. They are phenomenally gorgeous and amazing creatures. Without further delay, let me get this awesome gal on here. Gail, thank you so much for being on today and welcome to the Paranormal Prowlers podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure is absolutely all mine. Now, Gail, yesterday we had a really nice chat on the phone where you spoke about things that were really close to your heart. One of them being your beloved father. Now you were just a young girl when he left this earth way, way, way too early. And from one daddy's girl to another, I am so truly incredibly sorry about that. What was your favorite thing about your dad? He adored my mother and he adored me. He treated her the way she should be treated or should have been. She has since passed on as well. Mm. And he grew up in a house full of boys and he wanted a little girl. (laughs) Uh, And of course I was a tomboy, but he was just, he was a man's man, but he was so loving and very giving. And I have such fond memories of my childhood with him. That's awesome. I mean, he may have left early in your life, but those memories will stay with you forever. That's true. Absolutely. I still miss him. Oh, I yeah, I can only imagine. Absolutely. And sorry to hear about your mother. Yeah, she passed from Alzheimer's in 2014. 
Oh, so oh. recently then. Oh, I'm really mm-hmm. sorry. Yes. Well, what was your favorite thing about mom? She was my best friend. And a lot of people say you should not be your children's best friends, but that woman was there for me no matter what. And my joke about her was that I could go in and say, hey, mom, I just robbed the biggest bank in Dallas, Texas. And she'd say, oh, honey, that's wonderful. How much did you get? <laughs> Not really. But, I mean, she, she was my biggest supporter and was just always there. Yeah. Just pure, unconditional love as close as you can get from a human. Oh, that's amazing. That's great for sure. When it comes to your dad, you mentioned that he was a World War II vet. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. He was in World War II back when they had the draft. He was drafted. Wow. I just have to send love to him because my I have so much love for vets anyways. But my grandpa, <laughs> he also was a World War II veteran. And he, you know, fought in the Battle of the Bulge and different things. And they're just kind of a special breed, aren't they? Yes, they are. And my dad served in the Pacific Front, especially in New Guinea and the Philippines, but primarily in New Guinea. And I remember as a child, the scrapbooks he had full of photos and the things that that happened over there. And he um, got a medical discharge. A landmine went off. Uh, He had been over there for four years. And the landmine went off right close to him and severely burned his right arm and shattered his right eardrum. Oh, my God. And that's how he got out. So he was deaf in his right ear after that. So one of my memories as a child, I would he would always set me on his left leg so that when I talked, I was speaking into his left ear, which was his good ear. Wow. So yeah. <laughs> so glad he made it out of there alive. Yeah. I, yeah. you know, so guys, if you look at the cover picture, obviously there's a beautiful picture of Gail herself in that beautiful dress. And then there's two pictures of uh, one of Gail and her dad, and then the other of just him. And I just love those kind of old pictures. I look at those two in my, you know, my baby books of my grandparents. And mm-hmm. it, they're so fun. They're so neat for sure. And then the other one is a book cover, which we will talk about just in a little while as well. So when your dad passed on, as a young girl, you felt in your heart of hearts that his spirit decided to stay for at least three months. Talk about that for a bit, if you will. Okay, and not to be morbid, but my dad passed when we were at church on a Sunday morning. Uh He did not come in for the church service. He had told my mother that he had real bad indigestion and was going out to the car to get some Tums or Rolades. And when church started, she said, oh, your daddy probably fell asleep. Go outside and get him. And since we are doing a paranormal thing, this should make sense to people. Our car was parked at the end of a long walkway to the back door of the church, and I went out the back door of the church, looked down the walkway, and sure enough, he had his head leaned back on the headrest in our car and was asleep, so I thought. I went about halfway down the sidewalk, and I thought, oh, I'll let him sleep. I was 14, and I turned around to go back into the church, and I literally heard a voice screaming in my head, turn around, turn around. Oh. And when I did, his head dropped off the headrest. And I ran back to the car, and he had the window down, and I was beating on his arm saying, Daddy, Daddy, and nothing. I ran back into the church and said, Mom, I can't wake him up. And that was it. And he had had paranormal experiences all of his young life on the farm he grew up on and the land down the road. So for months afterwards... You could feel his presence in our living room in his favorite chair. I would hear his old truck in the driveway. He drove a Chevy Apache 10, 1957. It had a choke and a throttle. And when he shut the truck off, it made a very distinctive noise. And I would hear that truck in the driveway every night for about three months. And... My mother was so panic-stricken, I guess, after he died. Mm. It was the love of her life. Yeah. And it 
nowadays it sounds weird, but she couldn't bear to sleep in the bed alone for a while. Aww. And she would have me lay in the bed with her. Not a weird thing, just for comfort for another person. Right, right. And one night she was on her side and she was very softly snoring. And I was laying there flat on my back, wide awake, looking at the ceiling. And I said, Daddy, I miss you so much. Mm. And I felt this hand grab my right hand and squeeze it tight and hold it for a second and then let loose. Wow. And it was very, very strong. And um, I knew knew it was him. He was letting me know he was there and, and that he was watching over us for a while. Right. And after about three months or so, I didn't I didn't feel it anymore. But it was every single night for that that whole time. That's incredible. First of all, I have to say, when you were talking about how that voice was screaming in your head to turn around, I just got the craziest chills all over my arms, goosebumps. And mm-hmm. I I am so sorry that that happened. That you had to be the one to find him and just, you know, I mean, I I can't even imagine, but like you said, a lifetime of memories, I hope overshadow those kind of memories. Yeah. He looking at his picture, the two pictures that you sent me, I could feel the love. I could see how happy he is that you're on his lap, you know, on his knee and just, I, I could just feel it, you know, when you look at yeah. pictures and you could just feel the happiness and love and the joy. And it's like contagious, like, like that person that walks in the room and they're like, Oh, Joe blow has the biggest smile. Everyone has to smile. You yeah, know what I yeah. mean? So yeah, that was him. right. I, I could feel that for sure. And so I, I think it's very special. I've had that too, where people close to me pass away, not a parent mind you, but close to me, like adopted brother, whatever. And I, I would feel them afterwards. And it's, I, I think it's just such a blessing that they choose to kind of stay and kind of keep an eye and be your guardian angel. And I know people go, Oh, haha, guardian angel. But I really believe in that. I do. Oh, yeah, exactly. Heaven yes. They do. Yeah. You know, they're just looking over you, looking after you. And mm-hmm. just the fact that you were like, I miss you, dad. And you felt that hand, you know, and that he stayed for that long. And you said that your your mother didn't experience or didn't like, you know, feel that. What did she do when you told her that you felt that? Was she like, you know, you said she's your biggest supporter. Did she believe you or did she kind of go, mm, you know, like your dad believed, but not me so much? No, she totally believed me. Yeah. She totally believed me. I think part of the reason she didn't feel it, they had been married 26 years. Mm. And as I said already, he was the love of her life. Right. And I think she was so entrenched in her own grief. Yeah. Because it was so quick. And, you know, he had had an issue three months before he died with what, again, he thought was bad indigestion. But when he died, it was a massive heart attack, and the doctor said, looking back, the one three months before was probably a small one. He was having chest pains, but he thought it was just bad, you know, indigestion. Oh, wow. Obviously, it wasn't, and it was a massive heart attack that killed him. He was literally here one minute and gone the next. So it was very sudden, and so it nearly killed her as well. So... So I just need to interrupt real quick. I was just editing this episode and you hear her say it damn well nearly killed my mom. And then you hear this, hey, and I left it in here for you to hear. And I'm going to play that again. I, I think that the reason I felt him is, as much as it hurt for me, I, at that point in time, even though I was only 14, I was the stronger one of the two. I had to be. Yeah. For her. I understand. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm just very sorry. And I'm so glad that you had your mom for all these years. I'm still grateful to have both of my both of my parents. But believe you me, I've lost a lot of people throughout my life. I think about them a lot. And I always Mm -hmm. just like, I just remember the lifetime of memories that were created. Mm -hmm. Death can certainly not take that away. That's for sure. That's right. Yes. So That's you're exactly right. right. Absolutely. So 
you were raised hearing your dad share tales of the paranormal and encounters. Can you share some of those with us? Sure. And I want to stress to the people that listen to this, when I say that my dad was a high school dropout, they need to understand he was born in 1917. And, you know, the world was a lot different with him growing up. Yeah. So he grew up during the Great Depression. And his family was not wealthy by any means, but they were, you know, okay. They had they had a little farm, raised cattle. And in the ninth grade, everything fell apart. The bottom dropped out, and my dad had to quit school to work on the family farm to help support his mom and dad and, and the two brothers. Mm. I mean, my grandfather worked, and the brothers worked too, but everybody had to help. Yeah. And he was the oldest, so there was a little more emphasis on him helping than the other two and one of his chores when he was a boy and especially after he dropped out of school was to get up before sunrise and go down to the far corner of the 67 acres they lived on to go get the mules and the mules would hang out at this far corner every morning they (laughs) stayed there and adjoining that was the local cemetery that was about five to seven acres. That land was donated to the community by his parents' family Mm. because there had not been a community cemetery until 1898. Wow. And they donated that. So he hated going down there because there was this thing, this being that lived in the cemetery. And A lot of people go, oh, it's swamp gas, because this is not far outside of Houston. It was very humid. But swamp gas is luminescent. It's kind of green. It kind of hovers, okay? Okay. This thing was orange and silver and would go way up in the sky and would make a real loud swooshing sound when it was up over the graves, and then it would go back down into the graves. Ooh. And it would just scare him to death, even at 15 years old. It would just scare him to death, and it came out every single morning. So I grew up hearing about this thing and then when he married my mother she saw it so she vouched for it so when he passed his cousin's husband bought the family cows mama had no interest in trying to keep up with the cows and yeah everything so while he's sitting there paying my mother for the cows and i call this gentleman uncle frank because i was raised with him and his wife, which was my dad's cousin. And I said, Uncle Frank, does that thing at the cemetery still come out? And he said, oh, yeah, it still comes out about four or five times a year. (laughs) And they lived, they had built a brand new house up behind the cemetery, kind of angled from it, but they had a clear view of the cemetery. Why they wanted to build back there was beyond me, but they did. (laughs) And then there was a huge article on this being in the Houston newspaper with first-hand accounts of all the locals that saw it. They just got used to it because it was part of the area. Wow. So I'm firmly convinced that that thing is still there. Yeah, that's creepy. I personally have not seen it. I I would like to see it, even though it would be scary. Right. But it's definitely not swamp gas because it goes up too high. It makes too much noise. All the reports of it say the same thing, and it makes this really loud swooshing sound. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's, it's amazing that, you know, it's not just one person who saw it. It's like your dad saw it, your mom saw it, several other people saw it, your uncle saw it, you know, there was like a newspaper article about other people seeing it. And, Uh and it is good, like trying to debunk stuff, like you said, you know, like, no, it's not swamp gas. No, it's not this. And it kind of, when you were telling me about this yesterday, it kind of reminded me of, there's this uh, cemetery in Colorado, and I think it's like the Silver Cliff or West Cliff Cemetery, and I don't remember it now, but back in the day, they used to, like, this was in, like, National Geographic, like, the paper and magazine like an article about it but these miners saw these like weird green lights hovering over the graves dancing around them almost and they they weren't like fireflies because they saw those too but 
these were completely different and to this day people still see them but I mean it Mm -hmm. goes back to like a long time ago you know when mining was huge out there and it's just like Mm -hmm. I just love those kind of mysteries it's like well what the hell is it you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. exactly and whatever whatever it is and my dad swore by this and this was when he's you know 15 16 years old at this point that this thing had intelligence because my grandmother liked to tease it and taught it on the porch of the house. Yeah. And he swore that my grandfather was telling her one night, my dad was, was very down to earth. This, he wasn't one of these, you know, prone to flights of fancy sort of people. And he swore that my grandfather told my grandmother, her name was Lily, to be quiet and to quit teasing it. Hmm. And she wouldn't. Mm. And she stood up out of her rocking chair. They had a porch, went all the way across the front of the old farmhouse and Mm. screamed at it, hey, you, come here. And it did. (laughs) They had no electric lights in the house until like the late 1950s. They had a single light bulb hanging down in the kitchen. And this thing roared down there. She passed out in her rocking chair, fell over on the porch. And my dad and his two brothers dove under the bed and he said the house was filled with brilliant light and this really loud sound of it roaring around the house and then it went back down the road about a quarter of a mile to the cemetery and made this loud sucking sound going back into the ground wow that he said it just kind of like that when it went back into the ground so it almost denotes some sort of intelligence to it since she taunted it after that they just say she didn't do it anymore (laughs) right exactly well yeah and you know it listened to her she said come here and it's like well okay here i come i was invited be careful what you wish for (laughs) absolutely yeah man it seems like like a scene out of like the exorcist or poltergeist or something it's Mm -hmm. like oh my god and when Things like that happen. That's great to have so many people. It's not, again, it's not just one person going, that happened. And, you know, it's like, no, several of us saw this. It happened. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. (laughs) Yeah, and all three of the sons, you know, my two uncles all saw it. They were all there. That's incredible. And and they were all old enough to know what was going on and remember it. And um, so I have no reason to doubt that. Right. Yeah, why would you, you know, and I'm sure it stayed with all those people for the rest of their lives. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> Something that just won't go away. <laughs> yeah. You know, you recently stayed at the Cochise Hotel, a place that I intend to do an episode about sometime in the future, but what can you tell us about this location? Well, it's, first of all, just as a hotel, it's, Really, really cool. It's 1897, and the gentleman that owns the place has done a beautiful job of keeping it Mm. as close to the decor as would be appropriate for that period. There's several outbuildings around it that are original to the property. Big Nose Kate worked there for a while. Oh, wow. On one of her many split-ups from Bob, and they may have been permanently split up by that point. And then out behind the hotel is a 19th century gambling hall and the gentleman that owns the hotel, lovely gentleman named Phil Gessert. So big shout out Phil is an expert Pharaoh dealer. So my husband and I asked him to show us how to play Pharaoh because we see it in the movie of Tombstone and everything. Yeah. And, and so he showed us how, and it, it was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. A real Pharaoh game to people that know how goes much faster than what we did. But Phil was very sweet and patient showing us, you know, how to do it. The only thing we took with us was an EMF detector. That's the only thing. We didn't have, you know, anything else. And, of course, in hindsight, after getting there, Mario said my husband wished we'd, he'd taken his EVP and all that stuff. Yeah. But we took the EMF meter. We were the first people that feel allowed in the gambling hall after dark at night. And that EMF meter went nuts the whole time we were in there. And Mario finally sat down and acted like he was dealing Pharaoh. And (laughs) we are firmly convinced that there were two people across the table from him. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So when we went to the laundry where Kate worked, he turned on his cell phone to record me with the EMF meter 
and me talking because I was trying to contact Kate. Yeah. And I'm not into it like that as much as he is, but I'm, I'm fascinated with her character. And I made a point to stay a long way away from him so that the cell phone could not contaminate the EMF meter. And at one point, they have the big old heavy galvanized tin barrels in there and buckets where they would boil the clothes and everything. And mm. there's a real long-handled wooden paddle where they could stir the clothes. So Mario took that and started rattling it around in the bucket, in the great big bucket. And I'm asking questions about, Kate, are you here? Is anyone here that worked here? Did you work here? Is he irritating you doing this? When we go back and he played the phone back and he was videoing me at a distance, back to back there are two. Yep. Yep. Plain as day. Oh, wow. Very plain. Yeah. And we were like, oh, my word. Now, I'm not saying it was Kate. I don't know, but it was a female voice, and it was it was probably one of the workers there, but it's very plain. That's incredible. Yeah, to me, that's my favorite piece of evidence is the EVP, you know, the voices yes. of the deceased. It's like, well, wait a second, because I'm a debunker. I've said this a bunch of times, but, like, I'm totally a debunker. I'll, I'll debunk everything under the moon. If I hear a dog bark, if I hear this, that. So when I'm listening later right. and taking notes, I know exactly what's happening. And so... That's, it's like, wait a second, I didn't react to that voice, I didn't hear that voice, yet it sounds like it's whispering right in my recorder, or right in my ear, and it's like, yes. to me, that's epic, that's, mm-hmm. that's great, and you mentioned Pharaoh, going back real quick, I, you know, last time we were in Tombstone, in October, we had been invited by Donna from The Undertakers to go and play with her, and so we went, and it was neat. You know, I think, I don't remember what day it is, but it's at the Oriental where Doc Holliday and Wyatt right. did it there. And it's like, what a better place to learn how to play Pharaoh than right here at the Oriental in Tombstone, you uh-huh. know? And so yeah. we did, we, we played it and he was so kind teaching us and like really telling us how to, what to do and whatever. Uh-huh. And so then the next day he was doing it again. I think it was karaoke and he was just kind of like there playing. And so we went and played again and it was just so much fun. And so yeah, yeah, right. So I ended up buying, I already have a bunch of card decks, but I bought the old decks that don't have the numbers or, you know, the K or the A or any of those. And I'm, you know, I'm going to make a nice Pharaoh table thing. And now it's like a game that we love playing and I'm always the dealer. So I haven't played in a while, but it's, that's a really neat game. So, and that's fun that you guys were the, like the first people allowed there after night to go like do that kind of thing. Well, and and one thing I want to point out too, when we did this in the gambling hall, we were in there with the door shut. We were the only people in there. And, again, the, the backyard and the grounds of the Cochise Hotel is, are not huge, but it's a nice area, and there are multiple outbuildings. Hmm. We were the only ones on the grounds. So, for your listeners, that you know, there was no external noise. Cochise is tiny. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There were no cars going by. There were no other guests at the hotel out on the grounds. There was nobody in the laundry with us. We were it, and as I said, we made a point of keeping him. When he filmed and captured that EVP, he was a good 10 feet away from me because we did not want any kind of interference on that meter right? from the phone signals. That was it. There was nobody with us, nothing. That's neat for sure. Yeah, I have to say, Arizona really has become my go-to place for investigating. You know, I still investigate in my home state of Colorado and in other places, but I just, it's my favorite place, my favorite state to go. And Uh it, it just is so full of that old Wild West history and those spirits. And I love it for sure. I definitely wouldn't mind going to Cochise Hotel at some point. How far is that from Tombstone? Oh, it's a little over an hour. It's not very far at all. Mm. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, I'll have to definitely check that out sometime. Yeah, it's about 15 or 20 minutes outside of Wilcox. Okay, cool. So, it's not far at all. Yeah, well, that's nice for sure. 
Now, we're hopping from one state to the other. Now, one place you mentioned to me was this phenomenal photographic evidence that was caught at Gettysburg. Can you describe these special pieces of evidence? Sure. That was with my husband, who has since passed away, not asking for sympathy. Mm. We worked for a historical nonprofit research foundation. And he ran a historic site, and we had the privilege of one of our donors to the foundation gifted the foundation with the money for a two-week cross-country history trip for college history students. So we went to like Monticello, we went to the Over Million Courthouse in Illinois, we went to Harbor Ferry, mm. and then we were in Gettysburg for the 140th, and we spent a week there selling books for the press that the foundation owned. Well, we were involved in a living history unit, the 7th U.S. Living History Association, and our major in that unit, if there was a ghost within 100 miles, it would find him. <laughs> so he lived in Lynchburg, and so he came up, met us in Gettysburg, and here we go. And we hit multiple cold spots, but he had a real expensive, this is back in 03 or 04, digital camera. And one of the students is walking into the Triangle Field area, and my then-husband started photographing her as she's walking. And when the pictures all came out, there's an orb sitting right below her right shoulder. The next picture, it's on the shoulder. The next one, it's further up. Then the next one, on her neck. And finally, the last photo, it totally obliterated her face. It is in every picture, back to back. It was for some reason, attracted to Amy, hmm. and yeah. it stayed with her. That same night, bit of history for people listening, you know, the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg was, was July 1st, 1863. On June 30th, 1863, the 26th North Carolina Infantry was camped on the grounds of the Cashtown Inn, which is a 1797 establishment 10 miles outside of Gettysburg. We were there on June 30th, hmm. and the reenactment group of the 26th North Carolina was recreating that stay on the grounds of the Cashtown Inn. It is still an active hotel. Wow. The pictures from that night, every single picture is covered in orbs around those guys. Hmm. Just tons of them. It's not stars. It's not dust. There's too many pictures. There's too many orbs, and it's like they were patting them on the back saying, thank you for remembering us. Yeah. You know. Right. But, I mean, I've still got the stills of those pictures, and they're plain as day. And people say, oh, it's stars. No, these are pictures of men lined up together like in an infantry unit, and they're everywhere. So it, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was very interesting to see the results right. of what we got. That's awesome for sure. I like the thought that that – that was them just like, you know, saying thank you, you know, for not forgetting us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, none of us felt anything negative or threatening about it. When we saw the pictures or when we were there taking the photos, you know, we knew they would probably be there or something would be there. It is a very active site at that hotel. There's footsteps all the time during the night and things moving around. And when my major of the Living History, you know, someone and his wife stayed there, she woke up one night and sees a woman sitting in a chair in the room with her. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, hi. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Oh. And is it also in Gettysburg that you you mentioned somebody had seen the apparition of like a woman next to a creek or something? Well, it's next to Spangler Spring where people used to come and get water. Mm. And she is one of the most well-known ghosts that are reported being seen there and they set up a video camera there at the spring and caught it on video of her walking past in full 1863 period ladies clothing yeah that's incredible it's always neat when you see when people are able to capture that kind of evidence you know those uh -huh. partial uh -huh. apparitions full-bodied apparitions I mean, there's some type of manifestation. I mean, to me, that's mind-blowing. It is, and it, and it 
takes a lot of energy on the part of the spirit to manifest enough where you can get it on film. Right. Absolutely. I know it takes a lot. Like you said, it takes a lot of energy and even just to speak like, you know, me, I could talk all day, you know, a million words or whatever, but I know that's why whenever I'm recording in an investigation and maybe somebody's there with me, that's not really, you know, used to investigating. I always just say, look, EVP sessions for me, you ask a question, we wait several seconds because sometimes it takes that energy, you know, it's like they can't answer right away a lot of the times. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I can only imagine the energy it takes to just like, you know, manifest yourself. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. You yourself, you've seen two full bodied apparitions, one completely different from the other. I'd like to hear about both of them. Uh, Set the scene, if you will. First, let's hear about the woman. Okay, the first one was in 2010. I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Two hours west of San Antonio is a small town called Brackettville. That is where uh, John Wayne put that town on the map. He made his famous movie, The Alamo, Mm. there at Brackettville. That's where they built Alamo Village and the replica of the Alamo for John Wayne in 1959. And it's out on the Shahan family ranch. I took a job in Brackettville. I'd wanted to move there for years, and I took a job there and moved into this wonderful condo on Fort Clark, which is also in Brackettville, but Fort Clark is also an 1852 historic site. I had rented a condo there, and the condo that I lived in had a connecting door to the one next door to it, but it had been permanently locked. But the people that actually owned it had put the connecting door in there for the lady's grandmother so that they could take care of her and go back and forth. Yeah. And I was sitting up in bed one night. I wasn't asleep. Had the back screen doors open. Beautiful night. Had them, you know, latch, fresh breeze coming in. And all of a sudden, I looked down at the foot of the bed And there's this lady sitting at the foot of the bed on the right-hand side, and she's looking out, you know, toward toward the other side of the room. She's not looking at me. Hmm. And had her hands sitting on the lap. She's in a skirt and, you know, I mean, totally, totally dressed. She was almost solid. Wow. And all of a sudden, she turns and looks right at me has on the big, almost like 1980s, you know, plastic frame, the big glasses, and gave me a faint smile and then was gone. Hmm. That's the first one I saw. And I didn't really feel, but I was, you know, I didn't feel scared, but I was like, did I just see this? Right. So I tell my landlord what I'd seen, and she said, oh, that may be, I can't even remember the lady's name. Well, a while later, I get a call one Saturday morning and it was the lady that still owned the condo that that was the granddaughter that still owned it, you know. Yeah. And she said, I hear you may have seen my grandmother. And I said, well, I'm not sure. And she said, describe her. So I did. And she goes, yeah, that's her. She's like, you know, it's okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, Lord. <laughs> that's awesome that you were able to actually get the identity. You know, not only did you see this full-bodied apparition, but you actually were able to get a confirmation of who she is or who she was. (laughs) Well, if I'm not mistaken, she had died there. And Mm. they told me that after I moved in and I said, well, was it violent? Was it something negative? And they said, no, it's very peaceful. And I had no reason to, to feel, you know, threatened about it. Right. But, I mean, she, like I said, was almost solid. It was um, pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That's incredible for sure. Yeah. Now, I know this was more a positive situation. Now, the other one had to do with your husband, I believe. And this was more of a what seemed like a kind of negative spirit. What happened with this one? Well, he has done professional paranormal investigations. But he has a lifetime of otherworldly experiences, let's put it that way, of unusual things happening to him. And he admits that he has trouble with attachments, things want to follow him home. Mm -hmm. You know, some people seem to attract 
those, and a lot of the ones that attach to him seem to be negative. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm saying these things, you know, seem to flock to him. Right. This particular night, I was in that state where you're half asleep, half awake. And I look over, and my husband was still asleep, turned over on his side, had his back to me. And this white thing is there hovering over him. So my brain goes, oh, you're asleep. And I snap to real quick and rub my eyes and sit up. I watched that thing for a good two minutes. And this thing was dressed Hmm. (laughs) all in white and had on, I kid you not, had on a white cowboy hat. Oh, wow. Had the most evil grin. And it's looking at my husband. And I'm looking at it, and I know his history. So I'm like, no, you can't have him. He's not yours. Right. I'm a firm believer in God and in Jesus Christ. And I looked at it and said, you cannot be here. This is our house, and you cannot have him. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I command that you leave. Yeah. This thing looked at me, literally put its arm out, gave me a thumbs up, and evaporated. (laughs) And to this day, my husband will not let me tell him everything I saw. I started telling him about it. He said, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. And I said, well, let me tell you how I got rid of it. He said, no, I, I don't even want to know what it was. Oh, geez. And I said, it was plain as day. And it was very visible for, like I said, a, about two minutes. I don't ever want to see that thing again. That had the most evil smile, evil grin I have ever seen on anything in my life. Oh, yeah, that's creepy. Well, thankfully. And that, that was in Tombstone, so that's not unusual. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah Tombstone. That happened, in, that, that happened in Tombstone, so. Yeah, well, that makes sense, the cowboy hat and what have you. Yeah, Tombstone. Exactly. Tombstone is just a, such a phenomenal place. I, you know, I've I've had a couple people on from Tombstone, Bruce Burnett and Kevin Wilde, and yeah, I, yeah, I. Kevin and Mario are good friends. Oh, nice. Yeah, you know. Yeah. One of the things that, and I know I've said this before, so my listeners are probably going to be like, okay, hurry up, Tessa, and I will, but Tombstone, <laughs> the thing that really drew me, not was like the spirits and the history, that drew me for sure, but people just treat you like a local. They don't treat you like a tourist, like, give me your money. Like, like I've been to places like when I went to Mexico and Bahamas, and of course those were different countries, but it's just kind of like, it's like tourists on your forehead. They want your money. They want this and that. And when I went to Tombstone, I didn't see that in the slightest. People like, like you're a great example. We were playing a game at the Undertakers and drinking our coffee and you walk up and you're watching and you get involved. And, and I mean, it just kind of, I just love that kind of thing where they make you feel mm-hmm. at home. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I kind of gravitate there every year. And um, I, I don't blame you. That's how I ended up living there was yeah. going out there in December, 2019 and fell in love, which just stayed out there a week and was fascinated. Right. Yeah, I think that's what happened with Kevin, too, if I remember correctly. He said he was just passing through, and he loved it so much that he was like, I'm staying. (laughs) That's that's what happened to Mario. Yeah. He just kind of ended up there and stayed. Right. There's a lot of people that have done that, you know. But one thing that you or I or both of us need to impart, though, is people need to understand if they do a ghost investigation, there are negative entities out there. Mm -hmm. There are evil ones out there. They have to take the proper protection and don't play with fire right and i don't mean fire literally there are bad ones and it's that's one reason i'm very hesitant about what i do right recently mario did go with the emf meter and evp thing over to a house in tombstone and he got some excellent evps in broad daylight in there he was the only one in there other than the owners of the house, and they weren't even in the same room. And he walked through it during the day, and he got some very plain EVPs. That's awesome. Yeah, Tombstone just has a plethora of evidence just waiting to be heard. You know, I have I have left there every single time very satisfied, you know, always mm-hmm. getting... You know, and the photographic evidence is phenomenal, too. I've gotten so much there. And Mm -hmm. like I was telling you yesterday, and yeah, I just, every time it's a treat to go back and see what I'm going to get next time for sure. To you, Gail, what is your favorite place in Tombstone haunted-wise? Haunted-wise? Yeah. 
I kind of hate to say of of what limited experience I've had because some of the old houses I haven't gotten to go into yet. Yeah. And it's kind of a cliche, but the hotbed of activity is still the birdcage. Right. I have actually seen a really good orb in there. I know too many sane people that have had experiences that have, I've talked to workers there that have seen hands come around the curtain. There's nobody there. There's just so much that goes on there. But part of that is I can't help but wonder if the ghosts have been stirred up because they've had about six or seven different television shows in there doing things. And it's like they get antagonistic toward the tourists. You know, not right. the ghost shows, the, the spirits themselves, you know, but I would think probably in there, but they're in Undertaker's, you know, that back room that we went into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know they have a lot of activity in there. I know there's activity around the actual gunfight site. Right. So, uh, there is an apparition that Mario's got a full-bodied apparition that he managed to capture outside the Oriental. Mm. And one of my coworkers captured the exact same apparition outside of Shifflin Hall. And local rumor says it's Virgil Earp. I don't know if it is or not, but it's identical pictures in two different locations. Oh, wow. That is awesome. So yeah. The whole town, because think back in the day at its heyday, there was a murder a day there. Right. Yeah, that's not hard to believe, unfortunately. No, it's not. No, that's uh, definitely a... A neat place and people listening, I always recommend going to Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Before we end the episode, there's a book that your friend had written and you actually translated 19th century archaic Spanish documents for the book. And it has to do with a battle that took place right in your hometown of San Antonio, Texas. That's I correct. Yeah, that is so impressive to me. I would love to hear about the book and you translating and you know, those documents in that particular battle. Well, I want to give a shout out to my dear friend that wrote it, Richard Carrillo. I've known him since 1988. Mm. San Antonio, of course, is famous for the Battle of the Alamo that started in February of 1836 and ended, you know, in March of 1836. But the predecessor to that, there was the Texas Revolution was starting in 1835, and there's all this unrest and political problems in Texas in 1835, because at that point, Texas was part of Mexico, and all the promises that were made to the settlers that came into Texas were revoked by Santa Ana, and he revoked the Constitution that they came in under, and all this free land and everything, so starts a revolt. So in the fall And on into December of 1835, there were various battles, and there was a siege in San Antonio, and this all leads up to the Battle of Alamo. Well, everybody knows about it, but they don't really know the day-by-day and everything, and that's what Richard did in this book. Wow. So the documents were documents from Mexican officer to Mexican officer. Some of them were from... Stephen F. Austin on the Texas side, two Mexican officers written in Spanish. So Richard had several people, and I was lucky enough to be one of them, to translate these documents for this book. I had a blast working on it. Just loved it. It's the third professional history book I've edited and had part of. But this one was just more hands-on. You know, my old apartment one day, I'm getting ready to walk out, and I get a message from my friend Richard saying, I need you to translate this. And I said, well, I'm about to leave. When do you need it? And he said, now. <laughs> so an hour later, I leave. do <laughs> it, you know. But I had a blast doing it, and I was just really proud to be a small part of that book, you know. And, and the book is Battleground, the 1835 Siege of San Antonio. Actually, it's Battleground Bejar, which is the proper name of the county. And most people call it Bayer, but the real name of it is Bejar in Spanish. Okay. So, oh, that's very so, cool. That's, yeah, that that's neat that you're a part of that. And so, again, you guys, that is actually on the cover picture of this episode. And so are people able to, like for me... I, I've written a couple books and I just, I always tell people, get it from me. Don't go on Amazon, but I know not everyone's like that. If somebody was interested in this book, 
would they go directly to your friend or would they go to places like Amazon? No, they would go to Amazon. Okay. It was published by State House Press in Texas. Then they would go to Amazon. He was allotted a certain amount of hardbacks, and most of those he autographed and sent to people that worked on the book with him and for him. So nice. that's how I got my beautifully autographed copy of it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I get it on Amazon. But it is phenomenal. It is day by day. It's factual, and it's very well-researched and well-written. I'm, I'm just really proud of him and happy for him. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely, for sure. So, yeah, people, check out that book. And, Gail, I have to say it was an honor having you on here with me. Thank you so much for spending time and sharing so many unique and heartwarming experiences with us. Oh, no, thank you. I, I, the honor goes to me for you allowing me to share this and for having me on here. I, I just really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. Oh, I enjoyed it, too. Pleasure is all mine, and I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you when I get back to Tombstone. I was going to say, I hope to see you soon, and we'll get to play some more trivia. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. That. Have you been able to play any trivia yet? Not yet. <laughs> I'm waiting on it. I'm going to when I get back. <laughs> good, I'm, good. I have a feeling I'm going to end up needing another one to send to my children, to my grown kids, you know. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, you just, you just tell me the word and I'll do it. <laughs> okay. What a sweetheart. Genuinely, she's such a sweet gal. Like I said, Tombstone people just invite, are so inviting, and she really was. She just kind of came up not saying, who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? You know, she just kind of jumped right in and played and it was just so much fun. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? There's really no need to cry. Just head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms, such as Deezer, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Player FM. Wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Manado, Indonesia, Eden, Texas, Hastings, England, West Sacramento, California, and Muncie, Indiana. You guys, as always, a huge thanks to everyone. You are greatly appreciated. And a big shout out to Gail. Do you have some stories of your own to share? Feel free to message me at paraprowl at gmail.com or hit me up on Paranormal Prowlers Podcast, the Facebook page. Thanks, and we will see you next week.